0: We're carrying on in the book of Romans, and this time in chapter 4, toward the end of chapter 4, where Paul has just talked about the faith of Abraham. It, that is faith, will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord. By the way, I'm reading from the uh, English Standard Version. Jesus, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And chapter five. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And now we're skipping over to verse 12 in chapter 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death The trespass but where sin increased grace abounded all the more so that as sin reigneth in death reigned in death grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord amen father thank you for the faith of Abraham that is our model, Lord, in showing us that it is not our deeds of righteousness that save us, that give us justification in your eyes. Thank you, Lord, that we can come to you through the finished work of our Messiah on the cross and you receive us. Somehow you are able to impute to us what Jesus bought for us on the cross. And now, Lord, I just ask that the meditations of our heart and the words of our mouth would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen.
1: Thank you Helen, and thank you also to all of you who have uh, walked with us during this journey now uh, 14 and a half going on 15 years. Um, I have to admit it was uh, surprisingly exhilarating after I took the oath and sang O Canada for the first time as a Canadian American. And, uh, but it was honestly also quite strange for me to be rooting for Canada um, in a curling match for the bronze medal against the USA. That was a very strange thing for me. It was was heartfelt, it was sincere, and it was very odd. Um, But our reality has changed. So thank you all for your warmth and your friendship and your sponsorship and uh, all the things that uh, we have done together over the last 15, almost 15 years. One might have wondered, especially last Sunday, why or how or what is the connection or the intersection between where we've been in the creation and fall narratives in Genesis 1-3 through 3 and Romans chapter 5. Those questions, if you had them, and even if you didn't, they will be answered this morning. One of the very hardest things for us human beings to get over is the intrinsic sense of our own rightness. Unless we're suffering from some psychopathological lack of self-worth or agency in the world, we are prone to trust ourselves above all others, including God. Whether cultural or ethnic, moral or national, political or psychological, relational or religious, we just seem to have an innate sense and a serious overconfidence in our own rightness. Not many human beings are born saying, I admit it, I was wrong. I'm speaking, of course, metaphorically since we don't develop a sense of self-awareness until we're something like 12 to 18 months old and we don't speak in full sentences until we're two to three years old, but I think you get the point. The thoroughly biblical point is that our fallen human nature has developed in such a way that for the vast majority of us and from a very early age— we begin to believe strongly in our own rightness. Which is another way of saying that everyone else is wrong, even God. This persistent sense of our own rightness, this overconfidence in our own wisdom, the Bible calls conceit. And it's the exact opposite of humility. At its root, conceit is deeply embedded in our souls from the fall. It leads us to love ourselves rather than God and others. It leads us to grow into a sense of superiority over and a judge of others, even God and God's word. In the end, such conceit, which is running rampant in the world today, always leads us to death just as it did in the garden with Adam and Eve, just as it will with the devil who persuaded them to trust him and his words and themselves even over God and God's words. In the case of the devil, it's for sure a self-generation, self-generated malady, and he suffers from it still. And in a very real sense, the devil himself passed on this highly transmissible and now inborn sickness of conceit and superiority by which we presume to know in ourselves what is good, right, and true. He passed it on to our first neighbors, our first parents rather, Adam and Eve, and from them to every generation after them. And we're all affected by it, which, is literally, which was literally born in the devil's own conceit. We learn this quite clearly from the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 14, verses 12 and following. How you have fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. I just want to pause here for just a, a moment. The place that we get the proper name Lucifer is from this verse, chapter 14 of Isaiah, verse 12. And it's the translation of the word word halal, which in Latin is light bearer or Lucifer, which can also mean shining one or morning star. So if you believe in the devil, then this is Lucifer. If we don't believe in the devil, this is probably referring to Venus or some other planet. Um, I take the KGV at its word which says, "O Lucifer, son of dawn, how you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly, where is the place of worship, by the way. In the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Of course, this is reminiscent of the devil's deceptive promise to Adam and Eve. You'll recall that. You will not surely die after eating from the fruit of the tree of knowledge of, and good, uh, of good and evil. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. I'm not a psychologist, but I can see classic pro- projection. I, can, I, can, I, I know classic projection when I see it. So the devil here projects on Adam and Eve the very thing that he was guilty of, this conceit that I will make myself become like the Most High. You will be like God, knowing good good and evil. The prophecy of Ezekiel actually offers a similar but even more detailed and striking account. Now, as we've talked about before, these two prophecies, the one in Isaiah and the one in Ezekiel, have two or perhaps even more contexts as is often the case in prophetic literature. In prophetic literature and even in historical narrative, in some cases, there is first the immediate historical context near or in the time of the one recording it. Our day and time, for example, or Isaiah's day and time, or Ezekiel's day and time. And on top of that, there's a not yet equally historical but still future context. Or as in the case of both Isaiah and Ezekiel here, there's a context in the heavenlies. That can only be known by revelation as it is in these two accounts this feature of prophetic literature is often called the dynamic fulfillment of prophecy and if you're in my Wednesday evening Bible study you've heard that phrase quite a few times because much of what we read in the Old Testament whether it's in the Psalms or elsewhere is prophetic in some sense and we've referred to this and reviewed this dynamic fulfillment of prophecy a number of times. And this means that there is more than one application or fulfillment in a particular prophecy. So if we look at a timeline and we can maybe imagine that there would be a prophecy here, but that it might be... In the, in, the, in the now, and it might be fulfilled at a later time, a couple hundred years later, at another time, a couple hundred years after that, in Christ at the end of times. Um, and we see this as a common feature of prophetic literature. For, for one specific example, we might see a prophecy in the Psalms, for example. We've been in the Psalms for four years. This, this Wednesday, look out, we start 119 this Wednesday, it's got 150 verses we'll be there for about four years so uh so get ready but just just um, just think about and we've encountered these situations in the psalms this, so this isn't a hypothetical this is a real example that applies to king david in his day as he wrote the psalm then later in the life and kingship of his successor hezekiah when he restores the proper temple worship in his day Then when Jesus Christ comes as God in the flesh, and even perhaps when Jesus Christ comes to restore all things in the the end, at his second appearing. That's the dynamic fulfillment of prophecy. One prophecy fulfilled at several different points along the timeline and in various places. So when we read in Isaiah 14 that the king of Babylon is named, and it clearly refers, at least in part, to the devil, or here in Ezekiel 28, the king of Tyre is called out by name, but also applies to Satan, we shouldn't be surprised or confused by this common feature of prophecy. In fact, we should look for it. Now, I do know that this is a lot, but it's important for our understanding of Scripture, especially if we're going to be the kind of people who want to get all we can out of the Bible, the very written words of the one true and living God. Now listen to Ezekiel as he writes from verse 12 of chapter 28. Moreover, the word of the Lord Yahweh came to me, son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, okay, so I need to pause here for just a second. You, you may recall, and it may be a little bit disturbing for you to see the, t- the term son of man here in Ezekiel, referring to the prophet rather than to Jesus. You know that Jesus is referred to, especially in the Gospel of Mark, as the son of man. Well, Ezekiel is in a, in a, in a uh, typical way, and when I say typical, I don't mean common. What I mean is as a sort of type of Christ looking forward to Christ coming. And so throughout the, the uh the book of Ezekiel, the prophecy of Ezekiel, God actually refers to him as the son of man. And that's what he's doing here. Uh, The word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel, son of man, the Lord is saying, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God. Now listen to this. You were the signet of perfection full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardis, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. Verse 14. You were anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You were blameless in your ways. From the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, that means on the inside, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Now listen to this last part for the, the clincher as well as a prophecy of events to come. Verse 17. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. There's the fundamental conceit. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. I brought fire out from your midst It consumed you, and I turned you into ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. And I can't imagine a a, a more catastrophic end. Last two lines of verse 19. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. Make no mistake, this is a heart-rending lament, a personal lament of the Lord God Himself over the loss of His most perfect and beautiful created being. Whether we call Him Lucifer, or Dawn Star, or Son of the Morning, or Satan, or the Devil, or even Venus, makes no difference. Among other things, both Isaiah and especially Ezekiel here demonstrate in very clear, even emotional terms, God's deep grief over sin. And it's holy, just, and necessary punishment. This was true for Lucifer. It must be especially true for human beings created in God's very own image, male and female, to image his likeness and represent him on the earth. God grieves over our sin. It's why he sent his son in the person of Jesus Christ to give himself up for us, to offer himself as the perfect and perfectly satisfactory substitute for our sins, even the sins of the whole world, and thus to begin to reconcile all things to himself. This brings us finally to the central truth of our message for this morning. It's printed there for you in the upper inside left corner of your bulletins. Take a look at it. Here it is. I'll just read it through one time. Through the appearance, life, Death, resurrection, and ultimate return of Jesus Christ. God has restored, is restoring, and will restore in us the righteousness that human beings once and briefly shared in relation to him from the beginning. I'll read it one more time and I'll just add just a little two clarifying things. Through the appearance, life, death, resurrection, and ultimate return of Jesus Christ, God's only Son, God himself has restored, is restoring, and will restore in us the righteousness that human beings once and briefly shared in relation to him from the beginning. If you're not already there, I I invite you to turn with me to the book of Romans once again, chapter 5-ish, and I'll explain that in just a moment, chapter 5-ish. In just a moment, we'll begin to look at God's Word as it's written in the Bible with some additional depth over this issue of redemption, redemption. Now, last Sunday, we began basically with the first 11 verses of Romans 5. And specifically the saving truth that God in Christ Jesus began a plan to save us from the consequences of our own sin which tainted all of creation and to reconcile there was the big word last week to reconcile all things to God himself and to do so right from the very beginning actually before the beginning but let's not get stuck there we'll, we'll move on we'll come back to that perhaps at another time but today I'd like for us to see the vital connection and the necessity of both God's work in Jesus Christ to reconcile all things, including his people, to himself with the necessary work of God in Christ Jesus to make us righteous again. And this is crucially important. This is why I took all that time and made all that effort last Sunday and this To make sure we understand Satan's, the devil's, Lucifer's part in all of this, he infected the whole human race essentially with the same conceit by which he himself fell, and he's still doing it. This is also why we need to stick just as closely to the gospel of Jesus Christ as the Holy Spirit will enable us to do, and this as individuals, as families, and as a congregation. Last week, I introduced us to David F. Wells, Dr. David F. Wells, and his excellent but regrettable book. The book isn't regrettable, the reality it it, uh, addresses is, Losing Our Virtue, Why the Church Must Recover Its Moral Vision. Dr. Wells also has something serious and helpful for us today. Listen to this, quote, it is impossible, of course, To speak about the gospel without speaking about sin. Though if there were a way, our church marketers, with their boundless ingenuity, would have found it. They have often come close to passing the gospel off as if it had more to do with what we want than with who we are. More with consumption than with repentance. Repentance. The closer they have come to speaking about the gospel while ignoring sin, the closer they have come to a self-defeating strategy. Because if there really is no danger from which deliverance needs to be sought, then there really is no necessity for anyone to take the gospel seriously and believe it. What has happened here, and in many other ways, is that the church has accommodated itself to a culture in which sin now makes no sense. In the time and text we have remaining, we'll look at the cost of hu- to human beings of our own sin, beginning with our first father, Adam, as well as the cost of sin to God in Christ Jesus, and why the death of both Adam and Jesus were required, that is the word required, by the holy justice of God. To reset our textual context, I simply want us to reread Romans 4, 24, starting starting at at the it, as uh, Helen did earlier, and read through 5, 2, then jump directly to verse 12, and then we'll be off uh, in our pursuit of God's truth from verses 12 to 21. Look there at 24b with me. It will be counted to us, who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, just take a moment here, have been justified, the perfect here means that it's a finished event, it's done. Jesus himself said, it is finished. This is what he was talking about. But it has ongoing benefit. It has ongoing action, if you will. It's still ongoing, in other words. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have currently, right now, it is finished, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, or as the NIV says, which we now stand, which I think is exactly correct in the context, in the flow of the text, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. What we'll see now from verse... Twelve to the end of the chapter, is that we will be taken on to an unfettered path from Adam's death as a consequence of sin to Jesus' death on the cross as consequence of God's holy justice. And the first thing I think we can take from the, for these first three verses, 12, 13, and 14, is this. The sin of Adam infects us all and death is always the inevitable outcome. The sin of Adam infects us all, and death is always the inevitable outcome. It's the conceit of the devil passed on to us human beings through Adam that convinces us, has convinced most of us on a very practical level, that we don't need God or God's word on what constitutes righteous living, or to be saved, whatever that might mean. Consequently, we human beings are apt to believe any number of lies repeated over and over and over again since the garden about our own self-sufficiency, the absence, or at least the irrelevance of God, and the agency we must have in order to be truly free. And they are lies. All of them. And their ultimate end, if we follow them, if we order our lives by them, is always and inevitably death. Eventual physical death and ultimate spiritual death. The preacher in Proverbs puts it this way in 14, verse 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. There are many false hopes in this world, and the devil is behind most of them. But John made a specific point to note that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil— Here's what he says in 1 John, his first letter, chapter three, verse eight. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. But only the freedom Christ has secured for us on the cross is true freedom. Freedom from condemnation and wrath freedom from the power of sin, freedom to honor God with our lives, true freedom. All other roads, though they would appear to be right and true, end ultimately in death. Speaking to the Jews who had believed him in John chapter 8, verse 32, Jesus put it this way, if you abide in my word. This has nothing to do with human agency. This has nothing to do with doing what we want when we want wherever we want with whom we want which is pretty much our definition of freedom these days if you abide in my word you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free verse 36 if the son sets you free you will be free indeed let's take a look at the text now romans 5 verses 12 13 and 14. Therefore, and I don't think we need to go all the way back to the third verse and and read all of that. Again, we looked at it in depth last week. Let's just go back to verse 11 to get the therefore. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sin. If, if you want a, a term for what he's talking about in chapter, in chapter 5, verse 11, you can use the phrase, although it's not a particularly biblical phrase, but it is a descriptive phrase, and that is original sin. Here's where sin began. Here's where death began. We looked at it the last several weeks when we looked at ver- chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3. Of Genesis. This is the connection. Paul, by the Holy Spirit, is now explaining what was happening back then that, that caused it to be required that Jesus should come and offer himself up because of God's justice. Verse 12. For indeed, sin was in the world before the law was given. And we, we know that to be true. How do we know that to be true? Well, sin came in Genesis chapter 3. The law came in uh, Exodus chapter 20. There's a lot of time. There's a lot of text in between those two things. So it, it is a historical fact that sin came before the law was given. So it's, it's, it's acknowledging that, historical, that historical, historical fact. But sin is not counted where there is no law. So many people have wrestled with this. This is one of the difficult sentences in the Bible. But sin is not counted where there is no law. He's not saying that they weren't guilty. He's saying that there was no law against it. And therefore, perhaps they had no consciousness or they had no accountability. For the sin because they did not know the law the law had not said to them this is the right way to live this is the wrong way to live now live the right way and they knew when they were going against it the law had not been given yet at that point verse 14 yet death reigned from adam to moses what's his point there the penalty for sin was exercised on every human being although the law had not been yet given how do we know that? They all died. Everyone from Adam to Moses died, except one. I, 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 I saw that joy. <laughs> Enoch did not die. And I'll leave that between him and the Lord. But here the point is death reigned in all human beings even though the law had not yet been given from Adam to Moses. Even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, so it wasn't directly in, perhaps their sin wasn't in direct contravention of God's word, maybe it wasn't the conceit that caused them to do it, and yet they still encountered the penalty for sin, which is death, and their sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So Adam was a type, in a strange way, of Jesus in the sense that it's kind of in a controverted way. The sin came through Adam. Righteousness came through Christ. Death came through Adam. Life came through Jesus Christ. So it's, it's sort of an opposite way that Adam is typical of Christ, the one to come. So, the sin of Adam infects us all, and death is always the inevitable outcome. There's a second thing from verses 15, 16, and 17. The sacrifice of Jesus saves all who believe, and grace is always the inevitable outcome. So the sin of Adam infects us all and death is always the inevitable outcome here. The sacrifice of Jesus saves all who believe and grace is always the inevitable outcome. Now, I need you to hear me here because I know that a number of us struggle with this. I struggle with this and I've never met a person who doesn't struggle with this Um, and and so uh, I'm confident that I'm not the only one here this morning who needs to hear this There is no sin that you or any other human being could have committed that Jesus did not die to atone for. Now we've got two problems. One, whatever blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is, Jesus said could not and would not be forgiven. So that's one problem that we have. The other problem that we have is that John also says in his first letter, That no murderer is a child of God's kingdom. Well, that's true when the murderer is murdering. But there are a lot of murderers that will show up in heaven because of the grace of God in Christ Jesus. The point there is that I will not, I cannot, as a child of God, murder someone else with the Holy Spirit in me. That's the point that John is making. But Jesus can and will, I believe, have died for many murderers who come to Christ after the fact. I I know one of them. We had a friend in Iowa, Mike Brogan's his name, who was convicted because he did it of manslaughter, went to jail, went to the state penitentiary for a number of years and he now has a thriving ministry and is one of the dearest, kindest spiritual people you ever would meet. I know that spiritual is a little bit washy term, um, but a dear brother in the Lord. He's a murderer, or at least he was. He's not anymore. And the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, I can simply say that if if you had committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, you wouldn't be here this morning. You wouldn't be listening to me now. That is attributing to the Holy Spirit the work of the devil or attributing to the work of the devil to the Holy Spirit. You haven't committed it. I, 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 I don't believe you have. And as we saw last week... The devil and his demonic minions are another matter. Jesus did not die for the devil and his minions. They are irredeemable. But you, Jesus, died for you. Before we go on, we should take note that so-called freedom with strings attached, for example, have at it, but its end is the way to death is no freedom at all. That is only one of the reasons religion or the practice of religion or even irreligion cannot save us. To the contrary, the freedom Jesus Christ purchased for us on the cross and that the Holy Spirit secured for us in the resurrection leads to true freedom. We are free not to sin. We are free to love God and others truly. We are free to worship God in Christ Jesus. We are free to give our lives as a testimony to the Risen Lord. We are free to be at peace. We are free to experience joy. We are free to live eternally. Now look at the text with me, verses 15, 16, and 17. But the free gift is not like the trespass. So Adam sinned, death was a result. The free gift, that is of eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ, is not like the trespass. For if also being made right by God. Verse 17, For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. This leads us on to our third point, but I just want to repeat the second one. The sacrifice of Jesus saves all who believe And grace is always the inevitable outcome. Finally, our third and last point is, perhaps on a purely practical level, the most helpful and transformative, it's where we experience the truly biblical Christian life and true freedom. It's number three, the growing grace of God in us. The growing grace of God in us who believe always and inevitably results in the righteousness of Jesus Christ growing in us. In other words, we are being made righteous. The growing grace of God in us who believe always and inevitably results in the righteousness of Jesus Christ growing in us. We are being made righteous. Now, this does not mean that we will sin no longer. That is not God's expectation. I've heard a lot of sermons when you you get the idea that that is God's earnest expectation. He is holy for we should be holy and we should be holy, but that doesn't mean we'll be holy. As David said, the Lord knows we are but dust. Psalm 103 verses 14 and then you should probably read 15 and 16 as well. It does mean, however, as we walk in the sovereign grace of God in Christ Jesus, we are changed from the inside out over the course of our lifetimes. That is, the rest of our days from the time Jesus saves us. It's not going to be consistent. We're going to regress sometimes. It's not going to be even, and it won't be pretty often. But it is a general trend from unholiness to holiness as we pursue Christ. Now, this can be both exhilarating and daunting. It can be and should be exhilarating to realize that we belong to Jesus no matter what and forever. It can, can but should not be daunting to realize this more than implies lifelong growth, lifelong change, lifelong humility, and lifelong transformation. And at moments like this, and there will be many moments like this, we need continually to remember something else that Jesus himself said to other daunted disciples on a very similar point. They asked him, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Matthew 19, verses 25 and 26. Let's look briefly at our text from verse 18. To the end of the chapter. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, we're all gathered up in it, as Charles Swindoll, Charles Swindoll once said, whether it's by nature or by choice, we have all sinned. I think that's a correct summation of the story here. So one act of righteousness leads to justification that is being made right with God and life For all men, that is, all men who would believe, verse 19, for as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, that is, the obedience of Jesus Christ, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Now that's a very strange thing to hear. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. If there is no law, we have no consciousness of sin. We have no idea. We have no uh, sense that we have broken the law. But once we know the law, there's a sense in which the sin, the trespass, the violation of the law, is multiplied because we know we're doing it. Here's the law. I'm doing something else. So there's a sense in which the sin or, or, or the trespass is increased, is, is multiplied, or at least its effect on us. Verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also may, might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord." So then we can now see that the growing grace of God in us who believe always and inevitably results in the righteousness of Jesus Christ growing in us. We are being made righteous. Another way of thinking about it is he does not leave us where we are. He doesn't save us and then say, okay, see you later. Good luck. See you in heaven. No. Eternal life begins now. Transformation begins now. Being made righteous begins now, but it will not be complete until we are with him face to face, where there is no longer any taint of sin, where there is no longer any judgment. This has been, in Christ, we are being made righteous. May we all aspire as individuals, as families, and as God's people, to a renewed high view of God, a renewed high view of his word, a renewed higher view of his creation and of his whole creation and of our unique place in it, which is to bear his image and represent him on the earth. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we are humbled when we come before your word, Lord, help us. to allow the process of being judged by the word that we not become judges of it. And that when that conviction comes that we will be glad in our humility to agree with you, to confess our sin, to repent and believe anew. This is an important and difficult truth that in Christ we are being made righteous. The Bible actually says it in at least two different ways, we are made righteous and we are being made righteous. Both are true, one In the heavenlies right now before you we are made righteous and it is also true that in this life we are being made righteous until we are reunited with you. Help us to undergo this process of your word and your spirit within us willingly, joyfully, cheerfully, hopefully and in faith. Now, Lord, as we share communion together, I I do also pray that you would join us in some special way, your personal presence among us, that this will not merely be a a symbolic religious observance, but it will be a confession and a proclamation of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus until he comes.